1 Samuel chapter two. So glad you're all here this morning. Uh, this is such, such a potent teaching before us. And, and I say that as one who has spent the week learning and just soaking this up. And I, I pray the same for all of you this morning. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. And then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest and father. As we delve into this truly remarkable prayer of Hannah, we just ask that you would teach us to pray. Like your disciples asked you so long ago, Jesus, teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my wife Cheryl and, uh, and Camerly actually together have been studying conversational Hebrew. They've been going through a, kind of a course together and uh, Cheryl's whole focus is she wants to be able to say, Roni, I'm hungry, Roni, I'm thirsty, Roni, I'm cold, Roni, I'm hot, when we, when we go to Israel next month. And so she's been learning all these words and she's sharing these words with me and I'm like, I know, I know what that means, honey. And, and the most recent Hebrew phrase she shared with me, uh, she said, you know, it's this phrase, lalatet. Lalaitet, which means to give. Can you say that? Lalaitet. There you go. You know how to say to give in Hebrew. Well done. Lalaitet. But Cheryl said every time she says that phrase, she cannot help but be thinking of a French nursery song. Lalaitet, gentil lalaitet. I mean, that, that's, it's alouette, gentil alouette, alouette, je te plumare, right? Right? Little birdie, I'm gonna pluck out your feathers and bop you on the head. <laughs> Alouette, Layla Tet, oh. So uh, she's hearing this and she said that to me and I can't get the song out of my head. <laughs> we do all our own stunts. I'm walking around singing Layla Tet, Layla Tet. Well, Layla Tet means to give. So I want to give you something related to the Hebrew language this morning, something beyond humor, something that relates to the very end of the age, a prophecy. 
Perhaps you've heard it, Zephaniah chapter three, verse nine, that tells us, I will give the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. However, the phrase purified lips as translated in the New American Standard Bible. In Hebrew, it's berurah sapah, and it translates literally, I will give the peoples a pure language. I'll give them a pure language. I believe, personally, that the revival of Hebrew as a spoken language is yet another indication we are living in the last days. The last of the last days, that we're living in the days of the fig tree. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's in Matthew 24. You can look that up, Matthew 24, 32. We can trace the revival of the Hebrew language, a dead language, in the same way that Latin right now, Latin's a dead language. People don't speak Latin. Now, you can speak in Latin. You can learn Latin as a basis for language or a basis for understanding, like the Latin Vulgate translation of the scriptures. If you wanna go down that road, have a field day. And you could learn Hebrew. In fact, for, for a long, long time, 1,746 years, Hebrew was considered a dead language. Now, it was used in study. It was used for reading Torah, for praying, for rabbinical commentary like, like Talmud and, and in the Mishnahs. But it was a dead language. It wasn't spoken one to another on the street. But we can trace the revival of this pure language to a man whose name appears on major street signs in almost every major city in Israel today. You see, in 135 AD, Hebrew as a spoken language was forbidden by Rome. 135, after the final Bar Kokhba revolt at that time, Hadrian, who was the emperor of Rome, said, I've had it, I'm done with these Jews, and he forbade the meeting of two Jews in the street. He drove all the Jews out of Jerusalem completely, except for those who were sick, old, or infirm, and he said, you cannot even speak in this language anymore. So it fell off as a spoken language. Again, for, for 1,746 years, no one was speaking Hebrew as a language. They were just studying it. Till October the 13th, 1881, when a man by the name of Eliezer ben Yehuda made Aliyah to Israel. To make Aliyah is to go up. It's, it, it, it literally is their word for immigration. To immigrate is to go up to Israel in the same way that you go up to Jerusalem. Well, from that day forward, October 13th, he arrives in Israel, and he only allowed his family to speak Hebrew. We will not speak in any other language. This, I believe, Lithuanian-born Jew. And so he would not speak anything but Hebrew at home. He would not speak anything but Hebrew on the street to his friends. If you wanted to talk to Eliezer ben Yehuda, you had to talk in Hebrew. That was 1881, by 1922, Hebrew was recognized as the official language of the Jews in the British Mandate of Palestine. It was called Palestine at the time. Hebrew remains the spoken tongue, the pure language of Israel today. And the British historian Cecil Roth wrote, before Ben Yehuda, Jews could speak Hebrew. After him, they did. Before him they could, after him they did. A pure language, berurah sapah. I will give you berurah 
sapah, a pure language. And so we see this revival of Hebrew, and it's truly stunning. But berurah sapah, I have, it carries for me another meaning as we study this morning a pure language. Because among the many blessings of studying Samuel, as we talked about last week, is the pure language of prayer. You will hear many prayers through First and Second Samuel. And this is among the most beautiful, what we have before us today. The Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he once said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is. You could translate that, ladies, what a woman is on her knees before God, that she is. You were never more yourself than when you were on your knees before your creator. That's who you really are. And so in Luke chapter 11, verse one, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And so Jesus obliged, giving what we know today as the, the famous Lord's Prayer, which was not given as a ritual. It was not given as a creed. It was given as instruction, but I really wonder in asking Jesus, teach us to pray if the disciples weren't looking for something special. Not that the Lord's Prayer isn't special. It is very special to us. However, I think maybe they were looking for like their own coded prayer. Like John's disciples, they pray, you know, they pray like John, teach us to pray like you. No doubt they had seen Jesus slipping off early in the morning, disappearing through the night, they go try to find him, and when they did, they always found him praying. Teach us the special language, the pure language of prayer. The interesting thing is they ask that question, Matthew chapter six, Luke chapter 11, they ask that question after thousands of years of instruction on prayer. It was in Torah. It was in the prophets. It's in the Psalms. I mean, you wanna learn how to pray, just open up your scrolls, bros. Check it out, it's there. Bible's full of instruction and illustration on how to pray. But the best prayer doesn't come from the head, it comes from the heart. It's what you truly express before the Lord, openly, honestly. Now, Hannah's prayer here is very open, it's very honest, it's raw, it's straightforward. She speaks her heart. We know that. We know that that's kind of been Hannah's pattern to speak her heart before the Lord. We saw that already in chapter one. This is now the, actually the second prayer of Hannah. But this pure language, it flows from the outpouring of the heart. It is spoken in trusting relationships. See, that's, that's where people misunderstand prayer. That's where even the Lord's Prayer, when it becomes rote, when it becomes quoted and repeated again and again, you start to forget, what's the point here? The point is I'm talking to the God who loves me, the God I love, the God that I know. The point is I'm having a conversation. By the way, conversation is always two-way. Prayer is so much more than the repetition of religious phraseology. It's spoken in trusting relationship. I mean, who opens up to someone they don't know? And yet we're invited when we speak to the Lord to open up and be honest with him and to share our hearts in a way you almost can't even share with anybody else. Prayer is not heavenly eBay or Amazon. <laughs> and prayer is not a complaint box. Cries, yes. Queries, absolutely. Questions, 
even in desperation, assuredly. But desperation is not the same as making accusations or allegations because the pure language of prayer is prayed in faith. I come to God trusting I don't know everything. As we talked about last week, and he's actually brought this up a lot recently, I don't go to God knowing that everything that I need to know. I go to God knowing he knows. And if I don't understand, that's one thing, but I know he does. And so the pure language of prayer comes by faith. Listen again to Hannah's first prayer. Go back to chapter one, uh, verse 13, where it says that as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Ellie thought she was drunk. I'm not even gonna look at the language of that prayer because we did last week. But if we were sitting there with Ellie the high priest, all we would see is a woman whose lips are moving, but she's not speaking out loud at all. She's pouring out her heart to the Lord. Verse 15, she says that at the end of the verse, I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Verse 20, at the end of the verse, she says, it says that she named her son Samuel, the answer to her prayer, because I have asked him of the Lord. She asked for this in her prayer, a prayer of desperation. Why you're praying, you barren woman, for a son? What are you thinking? She's thinking there's no one else who can help her with this but God. And she trusts him to do so. And then at the end of chapter one, of course, it says she meets up there again. This is now years later, three, four, five years later, meets up with Ellie at the tabernacle and says, for this boy I prayed and the Lord has given me my asking my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also asked him to the Lord. I know your Bible says dedicated. The word is asked. As long as he lives, he is asked to the Lord. Would you receive him? Receive my son back to you. And he, that is little Samuel, stayed there and worshiped. Hannah's prayer is the outpouring of the heart. She asked the Lord because she believed he was the only one to whom she could go. She asked from a condition of deep anguish. Trying to dredge up a little bit of what we talked about last week. Deep anguish. This is a woman in pain and in emptiness and in sorrow. A woman who has been taunted by the other wife in the house for years. When she brings her heart to the Lord and she asked him to give her a son, but note this, a son that she could turn around and give right back to him. I'm so impressed with this woman. And then chapter two picks up with Hannah's second prayer, which now is not a prayer of pain and desperation, it is a prayer of praise and devotion. This is a woman whose faith has been born out as it were on eagle's wings as she came before the Father. And it often follows this way, the second prayer. The first prayer often comes of desperation. The second prayer yields to devotion. The second prayer is spoken with the same pure language as the first. It is still a prayer of the heart, but it's a prayer of praise and a prayer of worship. And we're just gonna walk it through for the rest of our time this pure language of prayer. So follow with me, I'm gonna give you five points to follow and some sub points within there just to confuse you so you're not sure which point is actually the point. <laughs> Number one, we start with the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. Verse one, and we're gonna sit here for a minute. 
Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. What a great start. A wonderful beginning to prayer. It's a heart exulting, a horn exalted, a mouth speaking courageously. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. To exalt is to rejoice. It comes from a root word that literally means to jump. To jump up in rejoicing, my heart exalts. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Oh, good. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. And these are the things which defile the man. Listen to me. If you feel defiled, pray. If you feel defiled, pray. Because prayer is purifying. If as Jesus taught, and it is absolutely true, these evil dark, disgusting things come out of the heart and often then make their way out of the mouth and make us defiled, then what do we need? We need prayer. To pray from the heart because prayer is purifying. Prayer is purifying. Worshipful prayer unto the Lord has a cleansing effect on the heart and on the soul. Note that it's not Hannah's desperation that purified her. It was the faith that filled a desperate heart. Remember, as we said last week, she pours out her heart before the Lord. God fills it up with faith. And the faith has a purifying effect. What would have been a place of bitterness before now becomes a place of, of softness and of praise and of joy because the prayer now has washed her heart. I love the line from C.S. Lewis in the movie Shadowlands where he says, I, I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking and sleeping. It doesn't change God, it changes me. Prayer does that. And if you're feeling defiled, maybe purposefully defiled, maybe it's been a long day of a lot of defilement coming out of your mouth and you just wanna clean your mouth, don't just brush your teeth, pray. <laughs> pray because prayer is purifying for the defiled. And if you're weak, if you're weak, pray. Because prayer is strengthening. Hannah says, my horn, note this. The second thing, my horn is exalted in the Lord. That's not point two, we're still on point one, which is the joy of salvation. Stay there, stay my heart rejoices in the Lord. Now my horn is exalted in the Lord. My horn? Will she grow something out of her head during this pregnancy? What's this about? We've talked about this word before. It's, it's the root word is keren, Q-E-R-E-N, if you're transliterating. Here it's translated, it's the word carni from keren, and it literally translates radiant strength. My radiant strength is exalted in the Lord. If you're weak, pray, because prayer is strengthening. Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, you may recall this, it came about when Moses was coming down Mount Sinai that he did not know that the skin of his face shone 
because he was speaking with him. Shon is Karen. That, that you could translate it, the skin of his face looked like a horn because he was speaking with him. But it's not horn. It's radiant strength. There was a radiance about Moses, literally a glow, as the Bible makes very clear, that his face was shining. And that's, that's the kind of word, that's the use of the word when she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. It's my radiant strength. It indicates a bright, radiant uh, power that is in those who have looked to God. Hannah's making a correlation here. Hannah is so well-trained in Torah because she's making a correlation in her own life to Moses himself, to the strength of Moses coming down the mountain after having prayed to God. Hannah's like, I prayed to God and now I have a glow. I have a radiant strength. Now the word Kirin has another meaning, which we'll come to later on. But if you're defiled, pray. Prayer is purifying. If you're weak, pray. Prayer is strengthening. And if you're timid, or if you've been cowed by those around you, pray. Prayer is encouraging. You could say if you've been cowed, prayer makes you bullish. <laughs> Speaking of horns, I don't know. I'm gonna let this go. She says, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Why? Because she's been praying. Because prayer is encouraging. Prayer makes the timid open up. If you're already not defiled, you've been purified, and if you're already strengthened, guess what? You become bold in the Lord because of your praying. My mouth, she says, I love the line, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Well, who would that be? The word enemies is oyaba, and it literally means my hostile opposition. My hostile opposition. We know that a hostile opponent lived in the same house with Hannah. We know Panina was that hostile enemy, that overly fertile, mouthy thorn in the flesh. I just wanted to say that again. Great quote. <laughs> or, or as my friend Paul said uh, last week, he said, she's like an Italian sandwich that's gone sour. A panini? Panina, panini. Okay, that's, I looked at Paul the same way. I'm like, dude, really? <laughs> but to speak boldly, she says, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Listen, she's not trash talking. This isn't Hannah saying, now I can turn the taunts around on her. Like, like saying at home, and I could just imagine this. See, maybe this would be more the way I would think, and this is very shameful, but... How many of your little snot-nosed brats are serving at the tabernacle, Panina? <laughs> For all your many kids, mine, mine is serving as a priest at the age of five. <laughs> no, no, no. Hannah's point is she is no longer cowed before this bully. <laughs> Prayer encourages. She's strengthened in her prayer, she's strengthened in the faith God has poured in because she has poured out. And so as we pray, we become courageous, not foolish, not taunting, not jeering at others, not playing insult for insult or abuse for abuse. No, we just have a confidence that we're serving the Lord. We have a confidence that he has heard us. We have a confidence 
honestly, that our world lacks and does not understand. And it makes us bold in our mentality. It also makes it easier to deal with taunts and jeers from the world. I'm no longer bothered so much by those. I know who God is. I know what he's done in my life. And by the way, this, this boldness that comes of praying, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. This great encouragement, it's not only personal. This is corporate. This works for the body of Christ. This is part of why I believe in 2 Chronicles, why, it was, uh, why the Lord basically says, if you will turn to me and pray, I will heal your land. If the ch- Two things the church could do right now and make our pattern that would change this country, that would revive America, not back to what it was, but to what it could be in the Lord. Two things, pray and be in the word. If the church would do those two things, if we would devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer, this would be a powerful revival taking place all over the land because prayer is our access to the one and true God and it does give us an amazing boldness. In fact, listen to this, in Acts chapter four, in fact, if you wanna turn there, turn over to Acts chapter four real quickly if you can get there fast. I'll try to wait for you, but you know me. Peter and John were imprisoned by the very same people who had sent Jesus to his execution. The same Sanhedrin, Jewish ruling council, who called for the crucifixion of Jesus, now throw Peter and John into jail because they just healed a guy. (laughs) Well, and they're preaching Jesus. And they throw him in jail and they pull him out of jail and they stand him up in front of the ruling council and the council says, speak no more in this name. And Peter says, judge for yourselves whether it's right or not for us to speak in this name. We can, cannot help but to talk about what we've seen and heard. We have to. So then Peter and John, they go back to the fellowship there in Jerusalem. It tells us in Acts chapter four, Oh, picking up in verse 23, when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God in one accord. That is not a Honda. <laughs> and, you know, we can't do that much longer because the accord's on, you know, it's, it's, it's on its way out. But anyway, gotta use it when you can. And they said, oh Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. By the way, Hannah says the same thing when she says the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he sets the world on them. There is an acknowledgement in both of these courageous prayers, in both of these encouraging prayers, God's the creator. He's the maker of all things. If he can do that, can he not encourage us? Can he not work In my puny life, when he's done all of this, what, is he not capable? Is my life just the one life that's a little too hard for God? Oh no, they they cry out to their creator and they say in verse 25, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Psalm two, verses one and two, why did the Gentiles rage? and the peoples devised futile things, and the kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, they continue to pray together, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, 
And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God, how? With boldness. That is courage. This is an encouraged church. And by the way, if you read this and go, how does that work? They all prayed this prayer all together in unison? What is this, a musical? I don't know if you're like me. That, that's what pulls me out sometimes. I'm, walk, I'm watching like a show or a movie or something and all of a sudden everybody's singing together. I'm like, how'd they learn the words? How does that happen? Listen, they are all praying together. They are in one accord. That is, they are united in heart. Now, I wasn't there, but my assumption in this prayer is they were all gathered together in the one place and someone began praying and then someone else prayed too and someone else prayed and they're all praying in agreement and this, word, this prayer, this short version of the prayer is a collection of the things that were said together, that they embraced together, that they received together. They said, yes, we are in agreement here. And they prayed this before the Lord and what resulted was a courageous people. Hey, Hannah has the same blessed assurance before a foe that, by the way, she never names. She does not overtly name Panina as that jerk of a woman I have to live with. Never says her name. She addresses the situation honestly, openly. She's a hostile opposition, and yet she doesn't name her. She just rejoices in her salvation. Back to 1 Samuel chapter two, that's the point. She's rejoicing in her salvation so she doesn't have to worry about her foe. If you're defiled, prayer is purifying. If you're weak, prayer is strengthening. If you're timid, prayer is encouraging. My heart exalts, my horn is exalted, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. Why, Hannah? Because I rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 51 verse 12, David said, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And I love what follows. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. When? When I rejoice in my salvation. Do you rejoice in your salvation? Are you joyful that you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are this morning. If, if you're not, I don't expect you to rejoice in your salvation. You don't understand it yet. And I spell yet with all capitals. Do you rejoice? Are you joyful in the fact that you are saved, that you're the walking saved in this world, that you're living gospels, every one of us? Do we rejoice in that? The simple embracing of the joy of our salvation has a huge effect on the gospel coming out of our mouths. With boldness and with exaltation of the Lord and, and, and with joy exalting in the Lord, God pours in these things as we pray. He pours in purity and strength and encouragement. What's my part in this? I just pour out my heart to the Lord. I pour out, he pours in. And I rejoice in his salvation. Verse two, 
There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Number two in your notes, the holiness of Yahweh. The joy of, of salvation, the holiness of Yahweh. Again, Hannah is so well-versed as she speaks of the Holy One. No one like Yahweh, she says. And she's so well-versed that she is again tapping into the Exodus teaching. Now, at, at the time of Hannah, there wasn't a whole lot of Bible to study. You know, there was Torah. Perhaps some of Joshua was written, you know, um, some of the judges, some of the things that had happened, perhaps. I don't even know if that was circulating yet. But we know Torah was available, the Torah scrolls. And we know that they could be read and studied. There were no synagogues at the time. So it's not like Hannah went up to synagogue to learn. Synagogue system didn't come for hundreds of years. But this was being taught. And, and she heard, and this woman retained these things. And we know this because she keeps referring to things that Moses did and said. My horn is exalted using the same word of the bright radiance of the strength of Moses. And here she says, there is no rock like our God. Well, that's Moses' talk. The word rock here that she uses is sur, T-S-U-R, sur, and it literally means a massive rock face. We're not talking about pebbles here. There is no rock like our God She's gonna pray this, well, it's prayed again, actually, she won't. David will, later on, 2 Samuel 22, verse two, and verse three, and verse 32, and verse 47. So all of 2 Samuel 22 is a prayer, which is repeated in Psalm 18. But listen to these verses. David says, the Lord is my sewer, my rock, and my fortress, and my deliverer. In verse three, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, the bright strength of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my savior. Verse 32 of 2 Samuel 22, who is a rock besides our God? The Lord lives, verse 47, blessed be my rock and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. So these are rock songs. <laughs> David, what a rock star, speaking of God who is the rock, Hannah referring to God who is our rock, and this rock has massive messianic implications. By the way, I mentioned Moses because in Deuteronomy, Moses is the first one to call God our rock, to refer to him multiple times through the book of Deuteronomy as the rock. Oh God, our rock, there is no rock Moses says, like our God, Hannah repeats in her prayer, there, nor is there any rock like our God. And it's messianic. When Moses spoke it, as Hannah speaks it, when David speaks it, our rock has messianic implications, which become strikingly clear by the end of the prayer. By the way, this prayer is a crescendo with a dynamic peak at the end of it. The greatest notes, the loudest chords are sounded at the end of this prayer with the Messiah. But at this point, even early on, when she says there is no rock or nor is there any rock like our God, rock is messianic in the scriptures. The prophet Isaiah chapter eight, verse 14 says, he shall become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone. And the word is tour, it's rock. 
a tested stone or a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Isaiah 28, 16, therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly corner for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed by the Spirit. Paul takes those two verses. He takes Isaiah 8, 14. He takes Isaiah 28, 16, and he combines them so you can do that with God's word. You can put two verses together and make another verse, and Paul does that in Romans 9.33. says, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone. And then he thinks about Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So Paul recognizes the rock. The rock is Jesus. The rock is, is Messiah, by the way, the equivalent to the Hebrew word sur, S-U-R, rock, is the Greek word petra. Not petros. Petros is pebble. Petra is stone. It's massive. It's a huge rock. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I say to you that you are Peter, petros. You're pebble, rocky. And upon this rock, sur, petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Hannah is praying, David is praying, Moses prayed and, and Paul prayed. Jesus refers to the steadfast rock that is Messiah on this rock. How does he build his church? Faith in the rock, faith in Jesus Christ, the church that prays, the church that is in the word of God and the church that is focused on Jesus. That is a strong church. That is a growing church. That's a church that builds up its most holy faith. That's a strong church, not an arrogant church. Hannah prays on in verse three, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and with him actions are weighed. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10 God says, I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind. Even again, give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. I know what you're gonna do before you do it because I know what you're thinking. I know what's in your heart before you act on it. He is fully aware of our motivations and the intentions behind our actions and behaviors. We're not that good. We're not so good as to know what the motive is. We try to find motives in crimes and in lawlessness. We try to figure out what was the motive? Why did this person do what they did? And we have to put together, piece together evidence. The Lord doesn't have to piece together any evidence. He already knows. He looks right into your heart, right into my soul and knows what I'm thinking and why I'm behaving the way I'm behaving. And by the way, he sees right through pretentious prayer. The religious stuff, where we're trying to look all holy, he knows, he hears it. He knows exactly what we're doing. In Matthew chapter six, verse five, Jesus said, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. 
But he says, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. See, that's exactly what Hannah was doing in chapter one. She's not out there blurting it all out. She's not out there accusing Penina to Ellie the high priest. She's not trying to make a case. She is praying from the heart to God. Her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out because she is praying direct. And her prayer is authentic and genuine and honest before the Lord. Jesus says, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Jesus was opposed to mantras. They get you nowhere except asleep or bored. They're just the same thing over and over. That's that's not praying. I don't go to my wife and say, lunch, 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 lunch. It doesn't work, trust me. Not because I've tried it or anything, but it, it doesn't work. Don't use meaningless repetition. They suppose they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, so why pray? He knows the heart. He knows the mind. He knows what I'm thinking. Why do I need to waste my time, spend my time in praying? Because prayer is never a waste of time. Prayer is relationship. Prayer is drawing near. Jake mentioned drawing near. How do you draw near to God? How do you get close to God who is unseen. Number one way, you pray. You draw near to him in prayer. You come before the throne of grace with boldness because of your salvation. You talk to him. Why after 36 years now, 34 years? I don't even know how many years I'm married. Don't tell Cheryl. Eight is six, minus three. I don't even know. 1986, so whatever that is, 86 to now, 30, it's gonna be 37? You know what? Don't even know why I mentioned that. No, I do. The reason why after 37 years my wife and I are closer now than we've ever been is because we talk to each other. And if you wanna draw near to God, you talk to him, you pray. But he already knows what I want. Uh, Yeah, and so does Cheryl. (laughs) I know Rick Lunch. (laughs) She can look at me and sees the look in my eyes. She reads through everything I say. So, um, honey, I don't know. What what are you having for dinner tonight? What I'm really saying is what's for dinner tonight? She knows that. Communicate with the Father, and you draw near to the Father. And it's not about gamesmanship and it's not about religion. It's not about your many words. It's about honestly talking to God, sharing your heart with the Lord. Hannah does. There is no rock like our God. Boast no more. Don't go to him with that arrogance. God is a God of knowledge. He knows, verse four, the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry cease. By the way, the word cease there is hadol, and it means are fat. I mean, literally, I just, the, the scripture just puts it right out there. Those who were hungry are fat. Well fed. And even the barren gives birth to seven, and she who has many children languishes. Hmm. 
who, wait a minute, who has many children? Panini bread, right? Panina's got many children. And here Hannah's praying, she who has many children languishes. The word languishes is umlala. <laughs> it really is in the Hebrew, umlala. And it means exhausted or dried out. She has many children, but she done. Penny is either done with having kids or she's done with kids. Either way, she's exhausted. <laughs> and so Hannah says, she's languishing, but she says, the barren gives birth to seven. Why would Hannah say that? There's something prophetic here. Uh, prophetic and hopeful, I might add. Because we're gonna find out in verse 21 that the Lord is going to bless Hannah with three additional sons and two daughters, plus Samuel, that's six. Hannah is going to have six children. But she says the barren has seven. Why does she say seven instead of six? Because seven indicates that her heart's desire is fulfilled. It's perfected, it's, it's completed in the Lord. And so she even prays this before she has any of these other kids. She has now been given little Samuel, but as she is there at the tabernacle praying this marvelous prayer, she says the barren, the barren has seven. She's already fulfilled in the Lord. But she recognizes something here, and it's so interesting in verses four and five. The mighty are shattered, the feeble are strong, the full are famished, the hungry are fattened, the Bearing or the barren are birthing and fertile myrtle is worn out. <laughs> so there's such a contrast here. Wait for it. Wait for the contrast. Wait for the end result. Because God is a God who works in number three, the reversal of conditions. The reversal of conditions. And all you gotta do is wait and trust. But my condition is hungry right now. Wait for lunch, Rick. Wait and trust. But my condition is barren right now. I'm empty, Lord. Wait on the Lord and trust. He is a God who reverses conditions. And I have seen this through my short life, and many of you have as well. The conditions change, they do. What is difficult now becomes a glory later. What is confusing now becomes clarified. What I struggle with now becomes my strength in the Lord, the reversal of conditions. See, we have a problem as human beings, I call it the practice of comparison, and we're all guilty of it, comparing self to others, and it is far worse now than it's ever been thanks to social media. The, the comparison that is constant. And by the way, parents, be careful with your kids in social media because they are steeped in comparison. 24 seven looking what all of their friends and other people are doing, what's being declared online and through social media. And by the way, most of it's not even true. But it looks so good when you put it out there. And, and this comparison, listen, it's not only self-devaluing, it is faith deflating. Comparison, comparing self to others. We do it even in the church. 
We may not even intend to. That guy is so spiritual. He really knows how to pray. Oh, she just loves the Lord. Wish I could, and you just entered comparison. And comparison will devalue yourself, sure, but worse, it will deflate your faith. Because now, rather than looking to the Lord to reverse conditions in your life, looking to the Lord to trust to know what he's doing in your life in particular, we're looking at the lives of other people. And our faith suffers for it. Our trust is undermined. Well, why does she? Well, how come he? Listen, you may feel feeble or hungry or empty. You may even be in that condition and be surrounded by people who are strong, well-fed, and productive. And if you enter into comparison, you're hurting yourself because God reverses conditions. I love this passage. We go to it often. 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh. At one point, you were not wise, Paul writes. There were not many mighty. There were not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I was having a conversation with with a pastor this last week who's struggling in his ministry, and, and, and he said to me, he goes, I am at the top of my game I'm preaching better than I've ever preached. I don't understand why my church is not exploding. And I listened for a bit, and I said, all due respect, but that is completely irrelevant. You being at the top of your game, that's completely irrelevant. Don't even compare yourself to what you think you are versus what God may be doing. Your strength, your power, your even courage is irrelevant. God's the one who's doing this stuff. And we don't boast before him. He's the one who reverses conditions. And by the way, when it's all said and done, Isaiah 65, turn to Isaiah 65. Keep your finger in 1 Samuel 2 and go to Isaiah 65. You need to see this. When this age is done, there is a promise that God makes to you, makes to me, makes to his people. It is a promise of reversed conditions. Verse 13, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice. You will be put to shame. Who's the you? Those who deny God. Those who say it's about me. Those who boast in themselves. He goes on, behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart. Why? Because they're saved. They have the joy of their salvation. But you will cry out with a heavy heart. You will wail with a broken 
spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name. Blessed, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. He who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. See, he's the reversal of conditions. And if your condition this morning is a bad condition, is a weak condition, is a feeble condition, is a hungry condition, God can reverse that. In fact, I will submit to you that his plan is to reverse that. You just trust in him. You cry out to him. You pour out your heart to him and let him do the work of filling your heart with faith. The reversal of conditions, number four, back to Hannah, the, re, the sovereignty, the sovereignty of Yahweh. The sovereignty of Yahweh, verse six. Whew, this is tough, but hear it clearly, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. And this is pure language that some Christians shy away from because it's just too absolute. What we would say is the Lord allows death and makes alive. The Lord allows people to go down to Sheol and he raises up. No, the Lord kills. He acts to kill human life. And I'm trying to be very black and white here for a reason. You know, I don't mind his authority to, to make alive. I, I accept his power to raise up, but the Lord kills, the Lord makes poor, the Lord brings low. Well, what's the proof? Genesis in the flood, the Lord kills. How about the Exodus plagues? The Lord brings low. How about the Leviticus judgment of Nadab and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron who were stupid and drunk and foolish and offered up strange fire? What, did, what happened that, that day? Fire came out from the tabernacle of the Lord and fried them. God fired them. <laughs> Took them out. Hannah says, the Lord kills. Yes, he does. Well, how could he do that? Well, Seeing as, you know, he's the maker and creator of life, doesn't he have the right? Aren't we truly, if it's all being completely honest, aren't we truly at, at, at his disposal? He doesn't have to let you live. He didn't have to breathe into you the breath of life. He doesn't have to let me continue. He can do whatever he wants. Now, he's gonna do it with perfect justice and righteousness and grace and mercy, but there is a sovereignty in the Lord and by the way, I'm a strong believer in free will. I'm not a Calvinist. I believe that we have choice in the whole thing. But I also believe that God is sovereign. And he does what he determines is right to do. And by the way, it's always right. How about in the wilderness of numbers, the painful lessons of Israelites who were killed in punishment? How about Jericho? Or I, the two cities, they're in Joshua. And, and by the way, with eyes, both Israelites were routed and killed, and then the inhabitants of I finally were routed and killed. Why? Because the Lord kills and makes alive, as Hannah prays. What about the routing of the foes of Israel in 
the times of the judges. By the way, there's more to come. There's more Old Testament God, as the world likes to say, who is the same as the New Testament Jesus. Grace and truth, justice, righteousness, mercy and compassion. This is all God. And again, in verse six, he kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. Haven't we spent the last six weeks talking about that moment when in the twinkling of an eye, we will be raised up? Because that's what the Lord does too. By his power, by his determination. And if you want a little hint of that, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That salvation is the rapture of the church. That resurrection is the catching up. And that is promised and that is coming. And fellow Christians, let me just ask you again, do you rejoice in that? Do you rejoice in that? In the salvation and the resurrection that is promised, God does that. He makes alive, he raises up. Remember this entire prayer is cast from the joy of Hannah's salvation. And when we talk about the sovereignty of God and his right and authority to do what he determines needs to be done, get this, understand this, it is not the wrath or the judgments of God that should shock us. It is the grace. That's what we don't deserve. It is the mercy that we have not earned. It's the goodness and the kindness and the gentleness and the tenderness and the compassion of God that should stun us in his holiness and sovereignty. Verse eight. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he sets the world on them. Note the contrast in that one verse between the poor from the dust and the pillars of the earth. It's a really cool contrast. You know what he's saying? It's the pitiful creature versus the grand creation. The poor of the dust, what are we made of? Dust. From dust we were made, to dust we will return. Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And so the poor from the dust, he raises up, but he establishes the pillars of the earth. The same creator God who established and supports all the created world, all the created universe, by the way, is the God who upholds and sustains the dusty poor. We're the dusty poor. We would have nothing if he hadn't given it to us. The dusty poor, as opposed to the pillars, the pillars of the created world. Hebrews chapter one, verse two says, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world established on the pillars. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds the very world. He upholds you and me in this life. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. And by the way, purification is the greatest need of the dusty poor, more than anything else. Verse nine, he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Man, I, I was thinking again this morning, Lord, teach me to pray like Hannah. This prayer is so profound. And it is, again, the outpouring of her heart. This is not three years of intense study by which she took all kinds of notes and then presented them at the tabernacle door. This is Hannah praying from the heart all that she can pour out before the Lord. And she says he keeps the feet of his godly ones. Psalm 94, 18, if I should say my foot has slipped, your loving kindness, O Lord, will hold me up. Again, it's not his judgment that holds me up, it's his grace that bears me through. There's another remarkably insightful statement in this verse of both judgment and grace. When she makes this comment that he, he keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked are silenced in darkness, do you recognize that Hannah, this early on in the understanding of the things of God, is referring to hell? When she says, the wicked are silenced in darkness. This is one of the things that, that people don't recognize or maybe don't think of with a literal hell. Hell is dark. Hell is pitch black. It's fire, but it is not fire that gives light. It's a fire that burns in absolute darkness. Jesus refers to it, the outer darkness, the darkness of hell. The terrifying thing about that is I don't know that anyone in hell will know anyone else is there. And even if they can hear the cries of others, they will not be able to see anybody. And it is a horrifying thought to choose darkness and to live in darkness. And I mention this darkness because the Bible is very clear there is only one way to be saved from it. There's only one way. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, these are springs without water, mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. But Hannah's profound point here is that godliness and salvation cannot be acquired by human effort. You can't claw and scratch your way out of hell. You cannot save yourself by any amount of good deeds or good works. She says, for not by might shall a man prevail. It's not based on what I can do. God says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And again, thinking back to this six-week study we did on the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, Romans chapter eight makes it very clear. It is the spirit within us, the Holy Spirit of the living God given to us that raises us up. The power of being caught up as Jesus Christ come up here is the spirit in us raising us up. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You will not get to heaven any other way. And this brings us to the final verse of Hannah's prayer and the one way home. She says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. 
Now, as we mentioned when we started, today is Palm Sunday. Maybe this isn't the Palm Sunday message you came to hear. But the remembrance of the marvelous morning when, when Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Christ, was recognized momentarily as perhaps the Christ by the Jewish people in Jerusalem. As they cried Hosanna and he rode that donkey's fold down from the Mount of Olives across the Kedron Valley up into Jerusalem to the shouts of praise, the laying down of palm branches on this Palm Sunday. And he did so exactly as had been prophesied a half a century earlier by Zechariah. Let me read this to you, Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And it played out exactly as the prophet said it when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And some would say, well, yeah, but he knew the prophecy, so he got the colt and hopped on and down he rode. Yeah, but he didn't force the people to shout Hosanna, did he? He didn't make Jerusalem erupt in praise, even as the prophet said, shout in triumph, daughter of Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. As the people are shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a prayer to Messiah. And of their own free will, the people of Jerusalem were praising and worshiping Jesus that morning. Zechariah said that's what would happen, but you know what? 600 years before Zechariah, so 1,100 years before Jesus came in and was called Messiah and praised and worshiped on that Palm Sunday, a week before his death, Hannah speaks a prophecy of King Messiah. And the whole prayer crescendos to this point these are the days before Israel even had a king. Oh, sure, the people from time to time would ask for a king, but there was no king over Israel. But she prophesies here in this prayer of King Jesus in his second coming. Listen to it again. He will give strength to his king. He will exalt the horn of his Mashiach. And I told you last week, it's the first time Messiah is used in the Bible of a person. The first time this word is used as a name, he will anoint the horn of his Messiah. And there's the word horn again. I told you we'd come back to this. That word that Hannah said, my horn is exalted. She's talking about her radiant strength, like the radiant strength of Moses, but horn also means authority. Authority. Just as Moses came down the mountain, tablets in hand, his face was shining with the horns of radiant authority. He didn't have horns on his head, but there was light coming out of his face, and it spoke not only that he had been in prayer before the Lord, but it spoke of the authority that God put on Moses to bring the law to the people. The keren, the, the authority, that radiant authority born by Moses. And here, Hannah ascribes it, he will exalt the radiant, bright authority of his Mashiach. Oh, listen to this. Revelation 1:13. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to the chest, or reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze when it's been made to glow in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun in all its strength. 
radiant strength, radiant authority on the face of Mashiach. And Hannah, this anonymous woman from a different time who wouldn't be known other than she is a woman of faith in the story. Hannah prophesied the second coming of Messiah, coming in all of his glorious, radiant, bright authority and strength. And it's not just because Messiah bears the word like Moses with the tablets, but because Messiah Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. First time he didn't come with that bright, radiant authority. Oh, it was in him, that authority. People recognized he didn't teach like their teachers did. But we don't see Jesus shining with the horns of authority like a Moses, like Hannah felt in her salvation until he comes again. And then John looks and he sees Jesus and his face is shining like the sun in all its strength. Hannah in this amazing prayer ties the ascendancy of the Lord Jesus Christ to judgment. That is his judgment of the contentious earth. Notice the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. This anointed one, this authoritative Messiah is going to come and when he comes, he will judge in the tribulation. John 5, 21 or 22, Jesus said, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I've got the authority, Jesus says, and he will wield that authority, that strength, that bright, shining radiance. Revelation 19, 11 tells us, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. How, I ask you, did Hannah know to pray such a thing? And it's one thing to go back to the, you know, the words and types that come out of Deuteronomy or come out of Torah, things that she may have heard. How in the world did this woman know that God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn, the bright, radiant authority of his Messiah? Where is she getting this? And I'll tell you something. You'll be amazed at what you come to know and understand when you pray. You will perhaps even be surprised at the comprehension of the will of God when you simply are in communication with him. As I said earlier, prayer is a two-way street. Prayer is not just you opening up your mouth and talking. Prayer is also listening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema, listen, obey. Speak with the heart, listen from the heart, because the Lord wants his people to know what he's doing. And he does give us that indication. He said, Jeremiah 33, verse three, call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. How do you know stuff sometimes? How do you know a brother or sister needs you to go talk to them, needs you to give them a call, needs you to say, hey, can I pray for you? How do you know when they turn and they say, I was just sitting here going, I wish someone would pray for me. How do you know? I've told you this many times, it still cracks me up to this day when people come up and say, Rick, how did you know what I was dealing with this week? I don't know. But he knows. 
He knows. And he will tell you great and mighty things. I want, I want him to tell me stuff. Great. Then listen. Well, I've been listening. Listen more. This is prayer. Prayer to our glorious God and Father who says, I will tell you. You call to me. I will tell you. I'll let you know what you need to know, when you need to know it, because it's on an as-needs-to-know basis. The joy of salvation, the holiness of Yahweh, the reversal of conditions, the sovereignty of Yahweh, the horn of Mashiach. Zephaniah chapter three, verse nine says, I will give to the peoples a pure language that all of them may call on the name of the Lord. Now, I do believe that that pure language is indicated in the Hebrew, I, I believe that's the, the, the prophecy, it's prophetic of the revival of the Hebrew language, but, but it also clearly is intended for prayer. I will give the peoples a pure language so that they may all do what? Call on the name of the Lord, that's prayer. That's why we've been given the pure language of prayer because the pure language of prayer in its essence is the language of faith. It's trusting. It draws me out of myself, brings me into his presence. It reveals his perfect nature. It reveals his divine will, which completely overcomes my puny will. When I see what he's doing and I see what I wanna do, I'm gonna do what he's doing because it's so much better. It changes prayer, changes my perspective, my worldview. It alters the very course of my life, your life. And by the way, the final proof is seen in verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Listen to me. Hannah's joyful, worshipful, prophetic prayer is prayed after she gave up her precious little boy. This prayer of joy and praise and prophecy after she has just relinquished care of her only son, Samuel. Moms, could you do that? Could you drop him off and say, I got three years, I got four years. He belongs to the Lord. Dads, could you let your son go? Self-sacrifice is formed in and by the praying heart. When a person comes to that point in life of self-sacrificial living, I guarantee they are a prayerful person because prayer frees me to give all things to God and to trust him with everything, even that which is most precious to me. And by the way, I wonder if little Samuel heard mama pray this prayer. I wonder how much prayer little Samuel got to hear in the three, four, or maybe five years that he was with mama at home before she drops him off at the tabernacle. Because Samuel has already begun to learn the pure language of prayer. May we learn to pray this way. Father, there's so much more we could talk about. And we need to pause and just come before you. Lord, I am so thankful to you that you heard your disciples' request before they even made it. Lord, teach us to pray, and you have been teaching us 
from verse one. Your entire word instructing us and leading us to understand what it means to come before you and pray. Father, this morning I pray we would comprehend just a little bit more of what this means, how vital it is that we turn to you and pour out our hearts and listen for your leading. And Father, there's some who are looking for some leading here this morning. Some decisions have to be made that are difficult and uncertain. Some steps need to be taken that are unknown. But Lord, you know. So I pray for that person here among us that they would hear you, that they would pause and stop spinning out scenarios and stop thinking out loud and, and talking through all the possibilities and making the lists of pros and cons. Lord, cause us to be still and listen and to hear your will. Give us the patience, Lord, to wait in prayer before you. Father, others need a reversal of conditions. There are some with some very deep struggles right now. And I pray in the name of Jesus, you would reverse that, that the feeble would be strong, that the hungry would be filled. Lord, that the empty would be made full. We thank you for your word through Hannah. Oh Lord, bless her. And thank you for sharing her prayer with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is here for you to come to at any point, at any time. If you have not given your life over to him, just handed yourself to him, I invite you to do that today. And you can come forward and pray to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and enter into a dynamic life that is eternal here and now. <laughs>